0: So Tallisons, you guys are the ones to, to be on the lookout for that, for sure. Um, I know it was awesome. In first service, there was just like a, like a moving chorus of coughing through the crowd. So I thought I got whatever I got on the plane home from Tanzania, but it sounds like a lot of you guys have the exact same thing I did. So congratulations on that. Hey, there's an ancient Jewish story that's absolutely incredible. It's set 2,500 or more years ago, and it's about a group of young men who were removed, along with many of their countrymen, forcibly removed from the place where they live and brought far away to the east to a place called the land of Shinar. And once they're there, every single person who's taken is put immediately under a system of assimilation designed to get them to kind of shed their old identity, to get rid of the gods that they worshipped, to take on all of the kind of cultural customs of the land of Shinar and become new people. And that was true for everybody who was brought into this place, But there is a a group of four friends in particular among that group who were put not just anywhere in the land of Shinar, but in the palace of the king himself. And so all of that kind of pressure to assimilate and that pressure to get rid of their old identity and take on the new one was even stronger for them. And there was a few different ways that they would go about doing that, trying to get them to assimilate. The first one was to change their names. All of these friends had strong names that were tied to their Jewish identity, but all of them had their names shifted to something that did honor and homage to one of the gods of the land of Shinar. So one of the friends was named God is my judge, and he had his his name changed to O Lady, protect the king. And Lady here is the wife of the chief god of the land of Shinar, a god named Nebu. The next friend was named Yahweh is gracious. He had his name changed to command of Aku, the moon god. The third was named who is what God is, and he had his name changed to who is like Aku. Now, with that one, you can see how obvious it is. They're just trying to change their focus. You're not who you were. You don't worship the God you worshiped before. Now you worship our gods. The fourth one was named Yahweh is a helper, and his name was changed to servant or helper of the shining one, who again is that God, Nebu. Nebu. So you can see how day in and day out being called these names that are just an absolute dismissal of your past identity and drawing you into a new religious identity, how it would wear on you. But it wasn't the most insidious form of this assimilation program or the most tempting one. That one came from them being offered food from the king's table. Now, anywhere in the world, even today, but especially in the ancient Near East, to be offered food from the table of the king wasn't just a practical benefit. I mean, it was that. You got better food and more food, higher quality food than anyone else in the kingdom. But it was also meant to teach you something about yourself. It was meant to make you feel privileged that you have access to the best food in the land. You're eating the same food that the king meant. It gave you a special identity. So it didn't necessarily seem negative the way changing your name might have. It seemed like an invitation into this great honor and this great dignity that you're being given. Now, these four friends that we're talking about, they refuse to eat this food. There's a lot of discussion, people who talk about the story, about why they refused that. And they're kind of, the most common reason given is that they were trying to stay kosher, to follow the Jewish dietary laws. And that's almost certainly part of it, because their whole effort is to try to remain distinct, But that can't be the only thing. And we know that because some of the food that they refuse is totally allowed within the Jewish dietary laws. Things like wine. So their refusal means something different. And they refused the food because they understood what the food was meant to communicate to them. They were meant to believe, just in a subtle, subversive way, without ever even thinking about it necessarily, that this is where you get your daily bread. Don't forget who it is that feeds you. It's not your old God, it's the king. I'm the one who feeds you. I am your source of food. And every day when you eat this fine food, you are drawn further and further into a new identity where you embrace the king of the land of Shinar as your personal king who feeds you, who gives you your daily food. So these four friends very bravely refused to eat it. And, you know, there's a few ways they could have done that. You sort of can picture like the typical, like, smack the plate off the table and say, I'm not eating this. I'm Jewish. I'm not a part of your system. I'm, I'm done with this, and I'm going to eat my own food. But what they do is something incredibly different than that. They respectfully and kindly and bravely go to the person in charge and say, we, we don't want to eat this food. We'd love to just eat. Um, Your Bible will say vegetables. What they actually ask to eat is seeds. And it's it's really interesting. We don't have time to talk about why that is. Maybe someday we will. But they ask to eat this simple diet just of fruits and vegetables and to just kind of, hey, let's see what happens. And God gives them favor with the person they're talking to, the text says, and he allows them to just eat this simple diet. And even though they're eating that, they grow more healthy and more strong than all of the other people who are serving in the king's palace. Not only do they grow more physically healthy, but they grow in wisdom and insight to the point that they rise to prominence above everyone else serving in the king's palace, to the point where the Bible says this about them. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. To stand before the king was an official title. It meant that they were high officials in the king's palace. Now, some of you guys who are Bible nerds or who went to VBS. when you were growing up, you probably knew who I was talking about a long time ago. So what is the land of Shinar, an old ancient title for? Babylon. Babylon. It's actually the, t- the title that's used in one part of Daniel chapter one, the story we've been telling. And you guys know the name Daniel probably, but some of you will be more familiar with his three friends by their Babylonian names. What are they? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nobody said Rakshak and Benny, which I find disappointing. <laughs> that's the Veggie Tales version. Quick pet peeve. For some reason, all of us in Sunday school were taught to say abendigo. It's abednego. It doesn't matter, but it drives me crazy. So for the rest of your life, please say abednego. These four friends are incredibly brave. And the reason I'm telling their story to start off today is because they did something that's amazing. They kept their distinctives as the people of God in place. They resisted all of the pressure put on them to assimilate, but they managed to do it through God's favor. And the author is very clear. He says it more than once that God is doing this for them. They are able to maintain their distinctiveness in a way that does not get them in trouble with the hostile people from the nation that they're exiled in. The Babylonians don't, at this point, look at them and say, you know what, kill these guys, they're resisting. No, it actually benefits them. They rise to prominence, and they're able to live without compromising, without giving in, alongside the hostile people that they live with. It's an incredible example. I think a big part of what Peter is going to talk to us about today in our passage in the book of 1 Peter is drawing us to try our best to achieve that same result. Over and over again in this letter, Peter has referred to the Christians who are reading it as exiles, as sojourners. He wants us to think of ourselves as people who are strangers in a foreign land, that we don't just live in the place where we're supposed to live. We live in a hostile world that is not our home, and we have a distinct identity different from the people around us, just like Daniel and his, and his three friends. And so the series has been ask, forcing us over and over again to ask ourselves, do I feel too comfortable in Babylon. Am I starting to feel like a Babylonian? Or am I aware of the things that are supposed to make me distinct, the things that are supposed to make me different? We start off today's section with a summary and kind of conclusion of the household code section. This is where Peter has been giving us a description of what Christians are supposed to look like, what our behavior towards one another is supposed to be like in order for us to stay a safe haven in the hostile world we live in. He says, finally, which means to to kind of sum everything up, All of you have these five things. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. You notice all of these terms are things that speak to the kind of communal, familial nature of the Christian community. They're not individualistic terms. They're terms for people to live together. That's always the assumption of the New Testament. But I think it's really interesting that it's a mixture of things. Like All of them sound really positive to us, But some of these characteristics in the first century Greco-Roman world were not looked upon as positive traits. So just as an example, we can take the first one and the last one. Unity of mind was very positive in the first century Greco-Roman world. They thought, no, to have unity of mind, that term meant that you have kind of like a shared religious tradition, a shared ethical tradition that you all, you and the people that you're in community with, believe the same thing, you're on the same page. That was a good thing. The last term, having a humble mind, was something that was looked down upon in that culture. We, in the modern Western world, we kind of like to pretend like we like humility. Some of us, by being Christians for a long time, might actually grow to, to value and appreciate humility, but I'm pretty convinced most of the time we pretend to like humility, but we actually don't. In the first century world, they were completely open about the fact that humility was something lame and looked down upon. So if somebody was humble, they saw that as weakness. To be humble meant what? You're not confident? You can't defend yourself? You can't stand up for yourself? And so for Peter, and this is not the only place, it's all over the New Testament, that Christians are to be humble like Jesus was humble. But you have to understand, that was calling them to value something that the rest of culture thought was not of value. This is something that they looked down upon. And so just like today, to live like a Christian means to embrace some qualities that look just kind of good to everyone and some qualities that are gonna make you stand out in a way that's not necessarily positive. And that leads right into what he starts talking about next. The rest of our section is shifting from talking about how Christians are supposed to relate to Christians to talking about how Christians are supposed to relate to the hostile world that we live in. And he starts off with one of the most difficult and the most consistent things that Christians are called to. He says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain A blessing. This is a common theme all throughout the New Testament. Christians, when you receive evil, you don't do what the rest of the world does. The rest of the world receives evil and they pay evil back out. Oftentimes, not even to the person who gave it to us, but to everyone else around us, right? He says, Christians, what you do instead is you receive evil and you don't give evil back out. More specifically, he says, don't repay reviling for reviling. It's not a word we use very often, but it means exactly the same thing in Greek and in English. It means insult, often public insult, defamation of character, someone talking about you publicly and saying something negative. And we all hate that, right? Raise your hand if you love having someone say something bad about you in public. Nobody? All right, we got one. (laughs) Nice. I believe you, actually. (laughs) Most of us hate this, right? And especially if there's a little bit of truth in it. Like if someone says something negative about us that we kind of believe and it's public, that's incredibly painful when we hear about it later. Peter says, when that happens, don't defend yourself by using the same tactics as those who are reviling you. And depending on your personality, that's either difficult or it's impossible, right? To not respond to somebody reviling you, to saying something bad about you with more of the same that you received. Then he goes farther, like if that's not hard enough, he says, on the contrary, bless. When you receive evil, when you receive reviling, respond with blessing. And the concept of blessing has two different meanings here, and I think Peter means both of them. The first is kind of the Jewish background meaning, and this is what we usually mean when we say bless. It means to invoke God's favor onto someone. So to bless someone means to ask God to do something good for them. And that's kind of the Jewish meaning of the idea of blessing. But the Greek word that's used here for bless in a Greek context meant something a little bit different. It meant to publicly speak well of someone. It's eulageo. it's where we get the word eulogy from. So, especially because it's being used in contrast to the word reviling, I, I think Peter actually has both meanings in mind, which makes it even more difficult than it sounds. When you receive evil, when you receive reviling, what you respond with is blessing. Can you imagine? Finding out that someone said something bad about you behind your back and responding by saying something positive about them and invoking God's favor on their life? Peter's calling us to something that, on the surface of it, seems completely ridiculous. Something happens when when you go through a book as slowly as we are, and there's a million good reasons why we do this, but one of the downsides is that you can forget what he just said, like a chapter ago, because it's been a couple of weeks since we looked at it. But what Peter is asking us to do here, he has just in the last chapter, in chapter 2, he described Jesus using these exact same terms. So here in chapter 3, he says, don't repay reviling for reviling. Back in in chapter 2, when he's talking about Jesus, he said this. It's lighter because it's a flashback, (laughs) right? He says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And this is the important part. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. All over the New Testament, in the writings of all of the letters, in the teachings and in the example of Jesus, we see that Jesus does not repay evil for evil. But I love this verse because Peter gives a reason that's kind of unique among the other writings. I mean, we see it in other places, but it's so clear here. He doesn't say when he suffered, he didn't threaten because he was a doormat and he didn't care. What he says is he didn't return reviling or suffering to those that did it to him because he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. Why does he not have to return evil to those who do evil to him? Because he has entrusted himself to God who will take care of it. And jumping back forward to chapter 3, it's exactly what Peter says we should do. He gives his reason why we don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling by quoting Psalm 34. It's a psalm he's already quoted a bunch of times in the letter in really subtle ways, but here he he gives a big chunk. He says, don't return reviling for reviling for whoever desires to love life and see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the lord is against those who do evil jesus did not return reviling for reviling because he entrusted himself to a god who can who will judge justly christians we don't return evil for evil not because we're doormats that's one of the kind of most common frustrations that people have Depending again on your personality, with the non retaliatory expectation of Christian behavior, is it makes you feel like you're a doormat? You're not a doormat. The reason that we don't respond with evil for evil is because God sees the evil and God will do something about it. Depending on how you're wired, you might really need to hear that. God sees everything, He's watching the righteous, He sees evil. He has it under control. He's going to do something about it. So we don't just allow evil to happen to us and not pay it back because who cares? Just let him get away with it because we entrust ourselves to a God who judges justly, who will handle it. When we think about like, it says the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. A lot of the time we talk about like, we say God is watching and we're doing it to like scare people into submission. You know what I mean? No one's ever done that with your kids in this room. God is watching because you want them to obey you. Here, I think it's really powerful. I've never even thought about this before, but, but Peter is invoking this psalm as a comfort to Christians who suffer. And the message in that last paragraph is, God is watching as a way to comfort people who are suffering. God sees what's happening. So when you suffer injustice, when you suffer reviling, why can you just put up with that? Why can you absorb it and not pay it back out? Because God sees it he's not overlooking it, he doesn't forget it, and he will do justice. So when you're insulted, how do you respond? Like somebody who knows God is watching and God's in charge, or like someone who feels like you have to deal with it? The call for Christian non-retaliation is not about like ignoring it because who cares, let him get away with it. It's just that it's not our job. God's got it under control. Peter kind of recognizes, it's interesting, it's not, again, it's not kind of the normal way this is talked about, but he's he's recognizing, I think, a pragmatic benefit of that also. He says, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? If you do the right thing, if you overlook evil, if you live like a Christian, who's going to hurt you for that? Now, like, that sounds crazy naive if that was the end of the section, but the very next verse makes it clear. Peter does not mean, like, if you do the right thing, no one will ever persecute you. That guy got persecuted enough to know that's not true before he ever wrote this letter. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. But his point is still this kind of Daniel 1 idea that, look, if you do good, if you respond well, if you live like a Christian, it actually, a lot of the time, will provide kind of a a practical safeguard to you against persecution. It may relieve it. And we've seen in the the weeks leading up to today how Peter expects and desires Christians to live in such a way that when people talk bad about them or, or say things about them, that their character will stand up to the accusation, right? That the things you do will put those accusations to rest just because of your character. Here it's the same kind of idea. If you do the right thing, it's a protection for you. But again, Peter himself knows and acknowledges there's a limit to that. There's story after story in the book of Acts of Peter suffering for doing what's right. Now here's how he concludes this section. It's one big thought, so I want to read it all and then we'll break it up a little bit. He says, "'Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, "'but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, "'always being prepared to make a defense "'to anyone who asks you for a reason "'for the hope that is in you. "'Yet do it with gentleness and respect, "'having a good conscience, "'so that when you are slandered, "'those who revile your good behavior in Christ "'may be put to shame.'" For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Real quick side note here that I think is very cool. This verse, uh, Peter quotes the Old Testament in really interesting ways. He doesn't use what's called an introductory formula most of the time. He doesn't say like, for it is written, and then quote the Old Testament. Over and over in this letter, he will just quote the Greek translation of the Old Testament verbatim and not even say that he did it. So if you're not paying attention to footnotes or if your Bible doesn't have as many footnotes, you don't even notice half the time. I've never noticed this one before. But this is a word-for-word quote from the Greek translation of Isaiah 8.12. If you're an Old Testament nerd at all, you know that one word must be different because he talks about Christ, and it's the Old Testament, right? But Isaiah, in Isaiah 8.12, he's telling the southern kingdom Judah to not be afraid of a coalition of two other kingdoms that are coming to threaten them. What he says to them in Greek is, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor the Lord himself as holy. Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor the Lord Christ as holy. Now this is incredible. The only word that switched is instead of the Lord himself, which is translating from the Hebrew Yahweh himself, he says the Lord Christ. Here's why this side note is worth it. Many of you are, like, are just kind of going, well, yeah, yeah, Christians think that Jesus is God, so big deal, but, but what you'll find the more you look into it, it's over and over again, all throughout history, it's happened over and over, it's still happening now, people and scholars will make the claim that the idea that Jesus is God is something that pops up way later in Christianity, that in the first century, no one thought that, and then it kind of got put back on it, and if you look at the old letters of like Paul and Peter and these guys, they don't think Jesus is God, it's only the later Gospels that think that. Verses like this, and there are tons of them, make it crystal clear And man, if you were the guy reading this and you were like a a Jewish believer who was familiar with the Old Testament, you would know exactly what Peter did. It's just really hard for us to see 2,000 years later reading it translated into English. Peter believes Jesus is God. So just the only reason I point that out is to show you one of many examples that disprove this idea that early Christians didn't think that Jesus was God. And if you hear that claim, just know that it's not true. It doesn't bear up under scrutiny, and it involves a total misunderstanding of how to read some of these early letters like this one. So Peter, in a really subtle way, says, don't be afraid. You can entrust yourself to Jesus, who is God, by the way. And he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's a really uh, popular verse in apologetics, this idea that you should be prepared to make a defense. And that's a totally legitimate use of that verse, but his primary meaning is not like that you need to have an answer to every single question. His primary meaning is when you are asked, you just have to be ready to answer the simple question why do you have this hope? He says you should answer that. You've got to be ready to speak up for Jesus when the opportunity presents itself in other ways. But do it with gentleness and respect. So once again, hostility does not demand a return hostility. You don't give hostility back when you receive it. And man, how many of you guys have seen Christians in one context or another defending Jesus but doing it without gentleness and respect, right? Again, be gracious with me if this is something that you struggle with. All of us have our, our blind spots, but some of us on Facebook are trying to defend Jesus, but we are doing it with the opposite of gentleness and respect. I mean, this is, this is Daniel 1, maintaining Christian or at the time Jewish distinctives without giving in, but with gentleness and respect, not throwing the plate of food, saying, hey, we can't eat this. I have been told, this is true, I've been at a festival where I was told by a guy with a sign and a megaphone that I was going to hell just because I was at this particular music festival. And I was like, I don't think I am. And if I am, it's not going to be because of this. There's like way better reasons. <laughs> if I, if like... And again, it's, it's like I want to say that with, with respect and, and, and with gentleness myself because pe- there are people who are out there boldly doing something. But I think they're missing a really important part of the message, which is that when you give that defense of the hope that you have, you do it with gentleness and respect. And so there's something I just want to ask every single Christian in the room today, and I want you to answer honestly. Do you feel prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have if someone asks you? In terms that they would understand, meaning like no Christianese allowed. And I don't say this to shame you. I really, I seriously don't. I'm sure there are tons of you that do. um, And there are probably a lot of you that don't. And that's not to shame you. It's to say we need to get this under control. If somebody asks you, and man, I really hope that, that many of you are living the lives where this will be asked of you, how are you so hopeful and positive even when you're suffering? I know many of you have been asked that before. Man, I've never seen someone be in this horrible of a situation and still have a smile on their face. How are you so positive? Do you know how to answer that question in a way that that gives glory to God and really articulates what your hope is in? And the reason I'm asking this, again, is not to shame you or embarrass you. It's to call you to, if your answer to that question is no, please let us help you. We want every single Christian to be ready to do this with gentleness and respect. So if you feel like, man, I don't think I could, then talk to one of the pastors here. Talk to one of us. Talk to your small group leader, if you're in a small group, or just a mature Christian that you respect, and say, you know what? I was thinking about what Peter said, and honestly, if someone asked me, why do I have such hope? I don't think I could explain why. That's not a horrible place to be in. Let's just figure out how to answer it, right? So please do that. If you don't know anyone in this church, and you feel like, man, I want to be able to do this, but I I don't I don't know anyone to ask, and I'm not comfortable walking up to you. You're super tall, and your, your Africa beard that you haven't trimmed yet is too long. I understand. <laughs> there are comment cards in the seat back in front of you, and you can 100% name, phone number, email, and say, I want to be able to give a, a reason for the hope that I have, and someone will contact you. We want everybody to be able to do this. It's, it's absolutely essential to your identity as Christians. And Peter ties it back into what he's been saying for the last couple of weeks, that your character, the life you live, should be such that when people revile you, right, like you just talked about, when people slander you, when people talk badly about you, your behavior puts that reviling to shame. Shame doesn't necessarily mean embarrassment the way it sounds in English, it's more like defeat. So the idea is that you have victory over those kind of gossipy things people say about you because your character speaks for itself. And he closes with something that's incredible but very easy to miss. He says it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And if you're reading the Bible quickly, you could just move right on to the next verse and completely miss the fact that Peter just said that it might be God's will for you to what? Suffer. There are preachers, teachers, authors who will tell you that it's never God's will for you to suffer in this life that if you have enough faith, God will deliver you from any kind of suffering. I just want to encourage you to believe Peter, not whoever says that. Peter says it might be God's will, God's will for your life, maybe that you suffer for doing what is right. Now, that doesn't mean like we should go seek that out or we should try to get in a situation where we suffer. It also doesn't mean that you get to invoke this for any kind of suffering that you experience You know, if the suffering is like my own fault, I'm not supposed to be like, well, God's will is for me to suffer. But it does mean that if you are doing what's right and as a result of living like a Christian, you are suffering, you might be right in the very center of God's will for your life. Don't let anybody tell you that, man, when you're suffering because you're following Jesus, it's because there's like some secret sin in your life or it's because you don't have enough faith. The part of the world I just came back from, there's a lot of preachers who teach that if you're suffering, it's because you're not giving enough to the church. Peter says, it might be God's will that you suffer for doing good. And man, even though that is incredibly hard if that's you, think about the example that you're following if you're suffering for doing what's right. It's the story of Jesus himself. It's Something that Peter understands himself, too. In Acts chapter 3, um, he preaches a sermon after healing a, a blind man, and, and he, or a lame man rather, and he g- gets questioned by the Sanhedrin and they threaten them and say, you better cut this out or bad stuff's going to happen. And his response along with the other guys who he's with is to say, hey, you do whatever you think is right, but we can't do anything other than bear witness to what we've seen. We're going to tell the truth. Two chapters later, in chapter 5, he gets beaten for it. And him and the other people who get beaten with him walk away. This is so incredible. And what they do is they praise God for being counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. That's Peter. That's the guy who writes this. He knows what it means to suffer for doing right. A few chapters later in Acts chapter 12, he's going to be chained up in prison. God will deliver him from that one. But man, if you believe church history, church tradition, Peter's life ends with crucifixion. And church tradition says that he, didn't, he demanded that he be crucified upside down because he didn't count himself worthy to die in the manner of a savior. This is a guy who knows what it means to suffer for doing good. And here's the thing. Those three friends of Daniel's from Daniel chapter 1, they do too. See, sometimes you get that, that Daniel 1 story where, hey, you know what, we're just going to kind of boldly Refuse to submit and we're going to hold on to our Christian distinctives and God will let you flourish right alongside the hostile culture that you are remaining distinct from. But sometimes there comes a point where you have to say, no, I won't won't give in and you'll have to kill me before I do. In Daniel chapter 3, after these three friends and Daniel have all kind of risen to prominence in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar builds a giant statue, a 90-foot tall by 9-foot wide golden statue. Now, this is just awesome Quick side note, we, um, I was teaching at Pacific Point Christian School, the first, second, and third graders. And um, I, I said this when I was teaching this story. Some of you guys already know where this is going. I said, Nebuchadnezzar built a 90-foot golden statue, and the second grader in the front row, just to himself, dead serious, goes, I thought it was a giant chocolate bunny. <laughs> and I was like, that is so awesome. If you guys have no I- if you didn't grow up in the church and you have no idea what I'm talking about, Google VeggieTales, Rackshack and Benny, and you'll see an evil king who's a giant pickle who's asking people to bow down to a giant chocolate bunny. Totally makes sense. (laughs) But I was like, somebody, this is pretty cute, but somebody needs to explain, you know, tomatoes don't talk, it wasn't a giant bunny, and probably a number of other things that go (laughs) along with that. But Nebuchadnezzar makes a 90-foot golden statue, and he calls all of the officials from all of his conquered territories to come to Babylon and bow down before it and worship it. They set it up on a plain of Shinar. It's meant to make you think about uh, the Tower of Babel that was built in the same place on a plain. He he builds this 90-foot statue and says, everyone fall down and worship the golden image. And if you don't, what happens to you? You guys know you've seen Tales. That part's true fiery furnace. If you don't fall down and worship the golden image, you get thrown into fire, you get executed. Everyone does except three people. And the three people who don't, it's kind of embarrassing because they're not just like officials from some faraway land that Nebuchadnezzar conquered. They work in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And so some of the other officials tell him and he gathers them in, he's super angry and he says, I'm giving you guys one more chance. If you don't bow down to this image, then I will throw you in the fire, and this is what he says, and what God will save you then? And the response to him is not kind of like what we would want it to be. Like our version of the story would be, turns out that they were ninjas the whole time, and they like kick Nebuchadnezzar into the fire and fight their way out and free the rest of the exiles, and they all go back to Jerusalem together. That's how like our exciting version of the story would be. But these are people of God, and they respond with what Peter later calls gentleness and respect. This is one of my favorite quotes in the entire Bible, truly. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, meaning if you throw us in the fire, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They say, respectfully, they use this title twice, King, do whatever you have to do. We have nothing else to say to you. Our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to your false God. Sometimes you get Daniel 1. You can kind of coexist while while remaining distinct in your identity as a Christian. Sometimes you get Daniel 3. You have to say, respectfully, you'll have to kill me before I bow to your gods. Many of you are familiar with the rest of the story. Nebuchadnezzar gets furious, heats the furnace up seven times hotter, which is a Jewish way of saying as hot as it could possibly get. Some of his men die while they're heating the furnace up. And that's not just like a random detail. The author wants you to see Nebuchadnezzar can't protect his own men. He can't protect his guys, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get thrown into the fiery furnace and one of the officials is looking into the fire. And he says, How many guys did you throw in again? Which I've always thought is a super weird question. Like, is, there, is that confusing of a situation? And he's like, How many were. This? It's three. We know, Rakshak and Benny. How many were thrown into the fire? Nebuchadnezzar says, Three. And he goes, I see four in there now. It's an incredible moment in the Old Testament. They walk out of the fire, they don't even smell like smoke. King Nebuchadnezzar, who just said, what God will be able to save you if I throw you in my furnace? He says, now I know, no God can save like this one. He doesn't quite get the gentleness and respect thing yet because the other thing he does is make a royal decree where anyone who trash talks the God of Israel gets, quote, torn limb from limb and has their house destroyed. He really does. That's (laughs) the end of Daniel 3. You can almost picture Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being like, well, we'll we'll work on that later. (laughs) The kindness and respect thing. But in all seriousness, Nebuchadnezzar's on a journey. If you read this book, he's not quite there yet, but within a couple chapters, I believe he will truly understand who the real one true God of the universe is. But already through this just, again, gentle, respectful, but firm stance, the result is that a pagan king acknowledges that the God of Israel is the one true God. Peter knows. Sometimes it's Acts 12 and you're chained up in prison. an angel comes and delivers you, sometimes you go to the cross like your Savior did. That's what Peter will eventually do. And so the question for us to wrestle with, and it's a really hard question, is, am I myself and am I training my kids to be the kind of people who can firmly, with gentleness and respect, resist the pressure to assimilate from the country that we're exiled in? Can I maintain my Christian distinctives in the face of pressure? Because you guys, we've had a couple hundred years in this country where it's been a kind of Daniel 1 situation, right? Where we sort of jive enough with what's going on that if we have our distinctives, we can kind of do that and get along with everybody. But to borrow another image from the book of Daniel, we're seeing the writing on the wall right now, right? Now God can do whatever he wants, and I hope and pray that this doesn't happen, but we have to be open to the possibility that our future here is not going to look as easy as it used to. That in order to be distinct as a Christian in this world might involve more and more sacrifice. Maybe not for us, maybe it's for our children. And the question is, will we, when asked to, bow before a golden image? Or will we say, respectfully, sir, you'll have to kill me first? Will we say, my God can save me, but even if he doesn't, I won't bow. The reason Christians can do this is because we have a hope that's different than the hopes of this world because we're not kind of putting all of our eggs in the basket of of everything working out for us in this life. This is something that Peter has talked about over and over and over again, that we have a hope that is beyond this life. And because we look to that, what we call eschatological hope, this future hope of the end of everything and how our ultimate end will turn out, because of that hope, we can do things in this life that are incredibly courageous, that are incredibly difficult We can stand firm and not give in in difficult times because we are relying on the ultimate deliverance. I want to read some more from Psalm 34, the part that Peter quoted, and then a couple more verses. It says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Our hope is in the ultimate future deliverance that was sealed for us 2,000 years ago and that we're waiting for now. And so most of us in this room are never going to like face a fiery furnace and have to say, you can throw me in it. The question is, what steps are you taking in your Christian life to become bold enough to make that kind of decision when it comes to smaller versions of that, to where maybe, like some of the people Peter's writing to, maybe your vocation suffers because you won't give in on something. Maybe you miss out on an opportunity at work because you refuse to do something that a Christian shouldn't do. Maybe your life is more difficult because you're gonna stand firm in your convictions as a Christian. Are you cultivating the habits that allow you to do that And the incredible thing here is is one of them is to fix your eyes on the hope that waits for you. So I'm gonna ask the ushers to pass out communion because one of the ways that we do that here every single week, one of the ways that we we remind ourselves of the hope that waits for us and fix our eyes on the ultimate deliverance that's coming is to remind ourselves of which king's table we eat from. See, the, uh, the exiles in Babylon, They knew when they were offered food from Nebuchadnezzar's table, if I eat from this king's table, I'm going to forget who the true king is. I'm going to forget who it is that actually gives me my daily bread. As Christians, every day you are offered food from a variety of different tables. And this practice that we have every week of reminding ourselves, the bread of life, the daily bread that I rely on, the thing that fuels me, the thing that sustains me. It's not just to remind us of something that happened. Of course it's for that, but it's also to fuel you and strengthen you for the life that you're supposed to live as an exile here in this world. And so we eat this bread and we drink this juice and we remind ourselves of the table that we get our daily bread from. that bread for the Christian is the body of Christ, broken for you. That's what he said. He said, this, holding up bread before his disciples, this is my body, broken for you. And he held up the cup and said, this is my blood poured out for the remission of sins. And so every week when we take this together, we remind ourselves, this is my hope. This is my source of daily bread. I don't care what I'm offered in this world. I don't care what I'm like intimidated into taking. I don't care what I'm enticed into taking because of the worldly advantages it might give me. I don't care what I'm tempted by or drawn into. This, this is my daily bread. This is what sustains me. The hope that the sacrifice that Jesus made has sealed an eternity with him for me. And man, if you believe you have that, if you really believe you have that, can you imagine how bold you could be? And that it sounds kind of silly because we're Christians and we're all supposed to believe that, but I mean, if you could become more and more convinced that everything you believe is true, that no, Jesus died 2,000 years ago, he rose from the dead three days later, and because of that, I am safe for all eternity. What can man do to me now? Why should I capitulate to assimilating into the land that I'm exiled in when there is a good and perfect home waiting for me? So we eat from this king's table to remind ourselves of where our daily bread is from. And the incredible thing for us on this side of salvation is that our daily bread was given to us 2,000 years ago, and it's available today and forever. So anyone in the room today, if you don't know Jesus, thank you for being here. We love having you here. Continue to, to wrestle with the claims of Jesus, but know that there is a safety and security that is permanent, that is everlasting, that was purchased for you a long time ago. You can have it today and forever. So let's pray, and and as we take this together, I invite you to ask God to fuel you to resist the table of the kings of this world and go to his instead. Father, I thank you for the gift of your son. I will never fully comprehend it, but I believe it. I believe that he died for me. I believe that he rose from the dead and I believe that he will vindicate every believer at the end, that all of us will rise like him. Lord, I pray that every Christian in this room would take courage, would receive boldness from the knowledge that you have saved them, and that there is nothing that man can do to us. So give us boldness in the small things, Lord, to be faithful to you, to be obedient to you, and give us courage for those of us who are, who are going to be faced with bigger things in our lives times when we will have to say, no, I'll take the furnace before I bow to another king. We love you. We thank you for the gift of your son. And I thank you that everyone in this room who relies on you, however far along they are on that, Lord, that when they rely on you and they rely on the finished work of your son, that they are secure. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the bread together. Remember the broken body of Jesus. We drink the cup together to remember the blood of Jesus spilled for you. We're going to sing a song.